listening to Mike Lochran on the Management Perspectives podcast. Please follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter where I publish all of my podcasts and blogs. Hi, this is Mike Lochran, and this is the Rockwell Automation Management Perspectives podcast. Today, I'm joined by Ian McGregor. Ian's the Business Development Manager at Emulate 3D, one of the newest additions to the Rockwell family. Hi, Ian. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Very well indeed. Ian, would, would you like to give the listeners um, a brief overview of, uh, of yourself, your career, and, and Emulate 3D? Sure. So Emulate 3D has been around for 17 years now. The aim of the company was to provide virtual commissioning, um, a way of testing out your control systems. Uh, We also do discrete event simulation with Sim 3D. And of course, for those who are looking at doing a project, Demo 3D is kind of an industrial train set that lets you put together the first straw man model uh, in order to progress. So our users are companies who are trying to minimize the costs associated with implementing automation, specifically to make the right decisions with dimensioning, and uh, also obviously to make sure that their controls are gonna work correctly the way they were designed to under all operating circumstances before they go on site. What what strikes me is that, you know, we, we talk around emulation, simulation, digital twins. And and in my mind, and, and probably many, many people's minds, that's a relatively new technology brought about by digitization, closely aligned to, to Industry 4.0. But I'm intrigued. 17 years ago, you, you started off um, with Emulate 3D. Uh, and you've gone through the three iterations there of uh, of the different phases, if you like. Um, I'm coming to the latest one. What what's driven that, Ian? What's you know wh- wh- why are we only hearing about digital twins now? What's 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 been the big impact, or what's, what's been the big explosion? Sure, that's an interesting point. Um, there are a couple of uh, enabling technologies, if you like, that, which have emerged over the last ten years. Um, but clearly, the modelling part and the ability to connect controls have been there for a while. Um, Simulation as a technique for understanding product flow goes back a lot further than that. Um, But what has arisen recently has been the increase in um, cost-effective computing power, uh, storage on the cloud at a knockdown rate, um, and a large diminution in the cost of um, sensors and the the kinds of um, equipment and software needed to be able to capture the data. So the concept of a digital twin has extended beyond a simulation model into operation. So simulation emulation and the demo 3D part that I've just described are all before you go into operation and leading up to operation. Now, there's a very good case to be made for continuing the life and the utility of a simulation model into 
the operational phase of the system. Whenever you make changes to it, it's always a good idea to simulate it first to understand the ramifications of the changes you're considering. The same is true for the emulation side of things. Uh, before you actually implement changes into your real control system, which of course by now is operational, it makes sense to test it out first using a virtual commissioning model. But because of this um, access to storage, computing power and cheaper sensors, we now find ourselves in a situation where uh, it's practical to create a visualization of a system and use that as a, a portal to further data about the operation of the real system in real time. So that's where we're beginning to see digital twins in operational conditions, whereas my background is all about um, what we've termed a dynamic digital twin, because obviously it's an operational model prior to actually going into operation. So, I mean, you know, 17 years, there must have been a couple of key industries that were early adopters of this. How, how do you see that? Um, it'd be good to understand a little bit more about those, but, but how do you see it being applied to a wider industrial applications? Sure. So the initial uh, adopters of, of what we could very much describe as a digital twin was the semiconductor industry. So within semiconductor, in the, um, the fab, which is the uh, process where the chips are actually manufactured, you'll find upwards of 200 um, very uh, capital intensive machines, which are carrying out uh, incredibly finely detailed work um, on an ever increasingly small scale. And the processes involved are self-regulating. So there's absolutely no possibility of doing forward scheduling because any given machine will be carrying out a task and as it performs the operation it will be measuring whether it needs to continue it for a little longer or whether it's got to the point where it needs to stop and that wafer um, that collection of, of future chips has got to be moved on to the next operation so indeed the only way to do um, realistic scheduling for a situation like that was to do real-time scheduling in order for that to actually be effective, you had to have communications between every machine and a central processor, which would calculate on the fly which um, machine should deal with that particular lot or that particular wafer next. So this real-time dispatching in semiconductor has been around for 30 or 40 years. Um, and the reason why semiconductor was the earliest adopter was, of course, money. Cost was not a problem. Um, a, a cassette of uh, wafers was worth a Ferrari. Sorry, I mean an Aston Martin, of course. <laughs> so so the, the money was there. And now, of course, because the costs have come down, the costs of collecting the data, the costs of processing the data, and the costs of the sensors, we can see the same kind of um, online awareness, real-time awareness of what's going on within manufacturing in processes which are 
generating less revenue in machines which are less capital intensive and yet which can still benefit from the same techniques being applied in order to remain flexible, in order to take the best decisions about what should be done next. I'm Mike Lochran, and you're listening to the Management Perspectives Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Ian McGregor, Business Development Manager at Emulate3D. So again, you know, a bit like the, uh, the, the prevalence of technology and the cost of cloud computing and access to what is effectively supercomputing and um, and a multitude of different peripherals to access data on. Again, we've kind of seen the democratization of technology, really, haven't we? By it, by it becoming, um, you know, the early adopters driving forward, um, being groundbreaking, but then wider industry being able to take benefit out of that, which, which is kind of the age-old technology curve, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is following the pattern. Um, and I would imagine that you'll have seen this as well, uh, outside of semiconductor. No, absolutely, and um, the one that comes to mind is um, how, how we've utilised the, the technology in, in a bottling plant, for instance, you know, um, because bottling plants have, have had a number of different issues over the years in regards to actually predicting how how a bottling line works. And I know certainly we've adopted the uh, the Emulate 3D technology to, to model and to digital twin uh, a bottling plant, which is probably something you wouldn't have done five years ago even. So, yeah, that democratization piece is absolutely core, the same as the prevalence of, of smartphones, of tablets and of and mobile devices within manufacturing as well. Again, you wouldn't have seen that five, six years ago. So, yeah, the, the, the curve matches no matter what industry you're in. So, Ian, a big a big point of, of discussion when we talk about um, the, the digital twin side of things um, and technology and, and the process behind it is obviously people. And, you know, my background being in automation for, for a number of years, I look at the automation boom of the last 25, 30 years and how it changed humans' interaction with industrial machinery. Um, we still required the human interaction. We just upskilled people and we needed skilled automation um, engineers and design engineers and maintenance engineers. Where do you see Emulate 3D um, and the digital twin going with human interaction? What do you think that's going to drive? It's an interesting question. Um, increasingly, we are seeing that companies are more and more aware of the fact that key pieces of machinery within their production facilities are they don't want to put them offline in order to train people and yet they need their operators to be fully trained and up and running as fast as possible in order to get the best out of the whole system and um, we often say that there are uh, four truths in any um, any virtual system or any real system so 
within the virtual world, the first truth is the CAD. That's the physical representation of machines and um, pieces of equipment that join the machines. Then we have the control system, which is uh, the second truth, if you like. A control system that defines how everything will work and what it will do and in which order. Then we have the third truth, which is the loads, whatever is going to trigger the interaction between the sensors, um, the activators and the system itself. And then the fourth one is, of course, the operators. Without the operators, you don't have a complete system in most cases. And therefore, the operators and the way they interact with those machines is very important. So we've been very interested in how users of our technology can interact and how we could modify our technology to make it more useful for that. And so, of course, when virtual reality and augmented reality came along, um, there was a huge surge of interest. People were wanting to know if we could do something um, more useful than just perhaps demonstrating something with it. So we saw there was an initial rise in interest, which was purely to do with, wow, this is what it looks like. Uh, you'd put the headset on, you'd look around, and you would feel uh, genuinely like you were in the space that was presented to your eyes. You know, a virtual reality environment is, is viscerally convincing. So as the years progressed and the technology improved and um, the headset manufacturers continued to invest more and more money, they provided us with a wonderful opportunity with the hand controllers and with their different ways of detecting where objects are and where the real world is. So we are now at a position where a user can put a headset on find themselves in front of a machine and a control system and the interface to the control system. So we've built a demo model which has a, um, a monitor in it, which is running an instructional video. On the other side of the operator, we have a standard HMI screen, which is showing the operator the sequence of operations they need to do and the information on that screen changes as the operator goes through the sequences. We have visual cues for the operator as to what they should do next. So you can have large green arrows bouncing up and down, pointing to the button that needs pressing. Um, and of course, as the operator goes through the sequence of operations, the program can be evaluating the operator and deciding whether or not to show the green arrows next time. Possibly the operator doesn't need them. Possibly they need to be shown them more, uh, more than before. And we can also incorporate uh, browser-based HMIs within uh, the virtual environment. Now, on top of that, the operator can pick up objects and put them down, um, move them from one hand to the next, so you really do have an environment which is, first of all, visually convincing, but second of all, it's fully interactive with the exclusion of pressure, of course. There's no feedback at this point, which is um, 
if you're trying to train somebody in how to carry out a sequence of operations as a result of an incident, then you've probably got all you need. And of course, it's safer than using a real machine. Um, it is safer for the operator, first and foremost, but also for the machine and for the products themselves. If your machine is producing expensive products, you wouldn't want to have to demonstrate what to do to recover a machine that goes into some sort of catastrophic um, failure. So doing that virtually brings um, opportunities for the company developing the machines or using the machines, but also for the operators who can take the time to train themselves fully before they get into uh, the real situation. So there's some really exciting stuff around virtual reality um, and augmented, but virtual is the one where currently we have a bit of an advance in terms of ability to interact and carry out interesting things. I'm Mike Lochran, and you're listening to the Management Perspectives Podcast. If you're enjoying the Management Perspectives Podcasts and want to learn more, join us on LinkedIn and take the next steps on your digital transformation journey. So it'd be interesting to see if um, we get feedback from different areas of, of industry as to where they think this might benefit them best. Are you hearing anything from sp specific industries? Yeah, well, what, what springs to mind is, you know, when I, uh, as I'm involved with, with the, typically the full supply chain from, you know, um, machine design at OEM level right the way through to implementation of a, of a line in a in a customer's plant to the full life cycle history that 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 design supply chain is becoming an absolutely core part of what people are doing because we're seeing more and more in a brief about machines and lines being agile and future ready um, meaning they want to be able to change the output of that machine or line shift by shift at the push of a button so that collaborative design process and also that that kind of modeling piece is becoming more and more critical more and more front of brain and and what strikes me with with some of the things that you've been talking about there ian around you know almost a virtual a virtual plant or machine in a box in your living room or your office or, or wherever you're wherever you're sitting currently that must lead to much more ease of collaboration and collaboration of design um, rather than having to physically build something, demonstrate it, get someone to say, yes, that's what I want, or no, that's not what I want, redesign it. Um, it, it must be driving a, a lot more collaboration. And, and certainly the feedback we're getting um, from industry is that collaboration of supply chain, that collaborative design and that life cycle life cycle kind of um, uh, wrap around, you know, 
manufacturing as a service. I want to be able to change the line in two years time for a different product on two minutes time. Uh, this, this can only help with that. Yeah, completely. I think we are seeing a few of the more uh, visionary companies using this in order to shorten their design cycles. So previously, if a company was tasked with developing a new semi-automatic machine, which is going to do A, B and C, and it's got to respect a cycle of this and all the usual rules and safety configurations and so on, companies were faced with not too many different options. You would have to build a prototype, you would have to demonstrate its operation, and then you would probably go through a series of iterations. Now, obviously, with the advent of CAD, you could um, build the system within CAD and then show it and possibly even animate parts of it. But you still haven't quite got to the point where you can replace your um, your, your physical prototypes with a virtual one. And of course, with um, virtual reality, two things suddenly become much more important and convenient. First of all, by putting the headset on, you feel like you are there. You get a much better appreciation of sight lines. You get a better appreciation of the scale of everything around you and its proximity. And of course, you can move around in that environment and feel comfortable in it or see opportunities for improving it. But the other possibility that I hadn't mentioned up until now, and you brought it up just now, was the ability to share that experience with somebody else in a different place. Um, they don't have to be in your office. They don't have to be in the same country as you. But if, if I started up a model now, put my headset on, I could send you the URL to that model. And if you've got a similarly equipped headset and laptop or desktop, you can join me in the model. So we would see each other as avatars. We could talk to each other using Skype or whatever. Um, and we could discuss the development of the system. And surely that's got to be a lot faster than the old way of doing things, which was we've, we've built version number one. We need you to fly down and see it. How are you fixed for next Tuesday? Can't do Tuesday. Steve's not around. How about Thursday? We can't do Thursday. We've got other clients coming in. How about the following week? Before you know it, you're, you're planning something which is weeks away. And in actual fact, you need to meet each other for possibly 10, 20, 30 minutes to run through all the new developments, to demonstrate the new operation and to get sign off or modification specs from the client. So I think doing all of this virtually is going to des definitely minimize the costs. But secondly, it's going to accelerate the process as well. So you're winning on both counts. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. We're talking about technologies that were probably really not really thought about, as I said, five, six years ago. And, and the speed of technology and the way it's been applied within industrial automation is phenomenal. And at Rockwell Automation, we like to talk about how, how we can expand human possibility. So I'd like to bring the human part into this. With the technology piece kind of being, you know, wow, isn't it great? Isn't it high tech? You know, is there ways that this will be applied um, to, to help less skilled workers, maybe carry out more complex tasks, 
or is it purely a technical um, piece of kit for technical people? What, 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 what are your thoughts on that, Ian? Well, so I think we are seeing very clear examples of how it can help um, people in the field who are backed up by um, a team which doesn't need to travel with them and yet can be called upon for their expertise at any given moment, obviously with prior organisation, no doubt. But, you know, we can send people into the field. Um, They can obviously be trained to a certain level, but at some point we're all familiar with a scenario where somebody turns up and says, well, I've taken it to pieces. I can see what your problem is. You're going to need Jim. He can be here next week. So, you know, we can't wait for Jim. If Jim could join us online, if Jim could see what we can see, and this is key, it's not just Jim on the phone and having it described to him. Jim can see what we've done. Jim can follow it. He doesn't have to get on a plane. Um, and he can be working with somebody else 10 minutes later, 20 minutes later. So where you have scarce resources, and we're very aware of the fact that we're moving into you know, the next decade when an awful lot of people with a lot of useful experience are going to be retiring. So we will be faced with a shortage of skilled labour in many different areas. And so we need to find more effective ways to actually share that knowledge where it exists. This is a good way of doing it. Oh, wow. So from what we're talking about here, I mean... <laughs> This 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 is this is available now. It's it's been utilised, and it's been utilised by companies to help speed up their design phase, which gets it into production quicker. But then not only speed up and get into production quicker, but help support in a more efficient manner. And, and actually, I, I mean, capture and augment um, workforce skill sets, which which as you say are are in um, in 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 decline in some areas, and then certainly bringing those STEAM subjects is going to help that. But you've got to be able to capture what Jim does on a day-to-day basis. And, and these, are, these are very high-tech specialist machines that, that don't need fixing every day. So, you know, that ability to be able to test and support without delving into the phys- physics and mechanicals of it seems to me like an absolute core part of Industry 4.0 and, and the agility piece of it to keep on manufacturing, but also be able to be agile for the future. I think uh, I think it's really really quite exciting and and Ian if if you had to summarize or if you had to kind of give some key takeaways for the listeners what would it be around the whole digital twin um emulation and simulation piece just just to kind of well, is it for everyone well uh, yeah that's a very good question so i think key key to this is the ability to spot where it can be used profitably. So um, you can't pick up a magazine these days without there being something in it about digital this and digital that. So it's certainly a very popular phrase at the moment. Um, Whereas, as we've described, um, most of the technology has been around for quite a long time, or at least the core modeling has been. What we're seeing now is an explosion in in the ability to apply it to a much broader field of of applications, that's for sure. But nonetheless, each company needs to be aware of the fact that there will be situations within their 
systems and manufacturing which are better adapted or, or most likely to benefit from these things. So in order to make sure you're putting your money where it is most effective, um, it's always good to spend some time with some experts, talk to people who've been doing this for years, talk to us, obviously. Um, but this is an ideal op uh, opportunity for me to put in a plug for our annual user group meeting, which will be virtual this year, of course. But um, it would be an ideal opportunity to speak to people who are actually using it. You know, we have users who are doing some, if not all of this right now. And some of them very kindly stand up in front of their peers and describe what they're doing to other companies. And so that's a golden opportunity to hear it from the horse's mouth. Um, but it's real. It's here. And uh, it can be very cost effective and very beneficial. So uh, it really does pay off to find out the truth and to cut away the, uh, the rest um, by talking to the experts. Well, anything that provides uh, cost effectiveness, but also has some user case studies, I, I think will go down well, Ian. Um, as always, I, uh, I always learn. I always learn many things after talking with you, especially around what, what kind of many people see as being um, future technology. Uh, and I, I've seen, I can say it's now technology and uh, it's certainly something that can offer benefits to, uh, to industry. And I think they should embrace it. Ian, Many thanks for your time. Um, always a pleasure. Thanks very much, Mike. Likewise. I'm Mike Lochran, and you've been listening to the Management Perspectives podcast. Please follow me, Mike Lochran, on LinkedIn and Twitter, where I publish all of my podcasts and blogs. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, as this really helps the show.